I'm a third-generation preacher on my father's side. His dad was a preacher. My grandfather, James Mullins Sr. My dad's a preacher, James Mullins Jr., and now myself. And then on my mom's side, I'm fourth generation. Her grandfather, her dad, Pearl Robinson, and then my mother, and even her mom, and people on her side of the family, and then myself. So I knew at a young age the call of God was on my life. I felt that at a very young age. I felt, how many in here, when you were young and you knew you were called to the ministry, you felt different from everybody else for a certain reason? And when I was young, I didn't necessarily know that's what it was, but I knew, like, I, I, it wasn't that I was better than nobody. I just felt different from my friends. I felt different from the things they did I wanted no part of, not only because I was raised in church, but sometimes I'm, talking, I'm even going around like church friends, Christian friends. There was just something different, and I knew there was something different on my life. And as I got older, I began to realize that it was the, the call, the specific call that was on my life that was setting me apart. And in no way, shape, form, or fashion did I ever think I was better than any of my friends or anything like that. I just, there was a difference. You all know what I'm talking about. And I see that now. My wife and I are the associate pastors of the church. We're also the young adult pastors. That's, a, that's our heartbeat right now is for the young adults, those that are college age and up. And uh, I told her when I was preparing for this message, I said, it was so nice to prepare for a message that I did not have to preach sin super hard <laughs> to these college-age young people because they live, I mean, they're all Christians, they love the Lord, but I'm telling you what, every week I'm like, man, y'all, I just preached on this last week, what are you doing, you know? <laughs> so this was so refreshing to get together. The title for the message is The Antidote for Worry. The Antidote for Worry. I'm going to take my text out of the book of Esther today, and um, before we go to Esther, if you would, you can turn your Bibles to Psalms 121, Psalms 121, 1 through 3. This is the antidote scripture right here. This is the antidote. Verse 1, I will lift up mine eyes to the hills, from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And verse 3 right here, after I read this, we'll just pack up and go. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Amen. Father, we love you. We thank you and we praise you for the, the group of people that are in here today. Many churches represented, many areas and regions represented here today in this room. Father, I thank you that our spirits are open to receive your word. Our minds are receptive and alert to your word today, God. Father, I thank you that each and every person under the sound of my voice today will be changed and moved by your mighty power. In your name we pray, amen. If you want to go ahead and, and just put your finger in the book of Esther real quick. I'm going to set this story up, and, you know, I'm not trying to out-preach anybody in here, but the Lord gave me a different spin on this story that I got a, several um, messages the last time I preached this, after I preached it, that they had never heard this the way that I had preached it before. And I thought, well, that's a great compliment, <laughs> or that's not good whatsoever. I don't know either way, but 
Most of them were great. But there's four characters, four people in the story that I'm going to hit on. And it's the king, Azarias, Esther, Haman, and Mordecai. Okay? Those are the four people that we're going to hit on today. So the story begins, and, and the king was having a several-day party. And he had princes over to the palace, and they were whining and dining the princess and having a good time. And at the end of the party, the king wanted his current wife, who was the queen, he wanted her to come and to dance provocatively and entertain these gentlemen. And she would not do it. And the scripture doesn't really tell us what happened to her, but we don't hear of her again. So he may have had her killed, he may have killed her, or he may have just exiled her somewhere, and, but we, do, we don't really know. We just know that she's gone. And so after that, the king says, I'm sure, to his servants and to some, some other, like, prime minister, he said, I want to have more or less a beauty contest to find a new wife, to find a new queen. So I want you to go to all the provinces, and it was over 120, I believe it was 127 to be exact, and I want you to get the prettiest lady out of each one of those provinces, and we're going to have a contest to see who wins, and who wins will be my bride. So they go through and they start narrowing them down, and who's in the running? Esther. And after all the, the trials and the contest, and she, she ends up being the winner. Esther wins the whole thing out of all of them. And in this part of the story is where you can see that God had already started to move. Right here. Because the king was an ungodly, cruel, mean king. He had no good really about him. He was the meanest king in his area, in his time. And many people in the land would fear him. And so when Esther won and she became his wife, she did not have the normal relationship that a husband and wife would have because she feared the king so much. She was deathly afraid of the king and being in his presence, even unless he invited her into his chambers, or and he invited her to be with him. But even at that, it, the scripture tells us that she was their relationship was not normal. She was always afraid of the king. But on the scene comes another man by the name of Mordecai. And one day Mordecai who is Esther's uncle, her parents had been killed, and I believe that he was the only relative that she had left. And one day, he was at the gate of the palace, and he overheard two temple guards plotting an assassination attempt on the king, Esther's husband. And when he heard about the attempt, he immediately left and went straight to Esther, to tell her of the plot that he had just heard about. And when he told her, he said, you need to tell the king. 
You need to tell him that his life is in danger, that there's a plot to kill him, to assassinate him, to, to get him out of here. And I can just imagine her with the fear that she had just on a normal daily basis of her husband, the king. She probably looked at Mordecai and was like, no, I, no, no, I'm not doing that. You mean to tell me that I'm going to go tell him who's probably going to kill me for, for just coming in on him that there's somebody trying to kill him? No, I'm not doing that. So instead, she went and told Someone. It doesn't tell us who Esther told, but she told someone who then probably went and told someone else that told someone else down the chain, and then eventually a person told the king of the assassination plot against him. And so now on come, comes on the scene a man named Haman. Haman is the prime minister of the king, He's probably your best elder or deacon. And puffs his chest out. <laughs> I'm great. <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. But Haman, Haman was just as ungodly and mean and cruel as the king. And Haman comes in and he's riding through the town. And thousands of people are bowing as Haman comes through. He's the second in command. Number two, right under the king. And he's riding through. And when he's riding through the town, he fixes on someone that's not bowing. Everyone, thousands and thousands of people are bowing as he's riding through. And he fixates on one person that's not bowing. Mordecai, the Jew. And of all the people that were there, all he could think of as he rode through was, that man did not bow. That man did not do what he was supposed to do. What is wrong with him? Who does he think he is? And so he gets home, and he's, Haman gets home, he's starting, he's talking with his wife, and he tells her about Mordecai the Jew that would not bow as he rode through. And the Bible says that Haman looked and he said, I could kill him with my bare hands. I can't stand him. And there's an exchange of conversation between Haman and his wife about the despise for Mordecai and that he's no good and that the Jews are no good and that they've used up all their knowledge and wisdom and that they should just annihilate the Jews. Mordecai and his seed. And there's more exchange of conversation. And uh, Haman and his wife say, let's build some gallows outside the palace here, outside of our home, and let's annihilate Mordecai. Let's hang Mordecai and all the Jews. Let's do away with them. We don't need them anymore. They're disposable to us. And so Haman goes to the king. I believe it was probably either they're, you know, having breakfast together. And Haman said, hey, this is what happened the other day. I was riding through. Everyone was bowing as they should except one man. His name's Mordecai. And I don't like that. We should kill him and kill all of his seed. Kill all his family. Kill all his people. We don't need them anymore. And the king, as 
mean and ungodly as he is, just turned and said, okay, that sounds good. What are we eating for lunch? Get rid of them. So, Mordecai ends up hearing about the plot now to kill him and his seed. And he goes back to Esther. And we all know this part of the story very well. He goes to Esther and he tells her, Esther, they're going to kill us. There is a plot against us now to annihilate us. You have to go to the king. You have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. To go along with your message, how you talked about in the last day, there's a price to pay. There's a, if, if you're going to have it, you got to pay for it. As I look around in here today, I see so many, um, the, just the, the grace, the wisdom that you have, the seasoned that you have, the seasonedness of your life. There's a reason that my hairline's starting to go back, because the church folk. <laughs> There's a reason my dad's hairline went all the way back, because the church folk. <laughs> no, actually, it got him before, before the church folk got him. <laughs> I tell him every day, I said, I just thank God I still got some, Dad. He said, buddy, you're good. I was 20, like 21, 22, and I'm 34. I said, thank you, Jesus, for 34 years of having a head of hair. I don't care if it goes back little by little, but if I can still put some gel and hairspray in there, I'm golden. <laughs> but I look around here today, and many faces that I see, I've seen from several Barnabas conferences and, and things that you've been at and that I've attended over the last probably three to five years. And I see the goodness in you. I see the Spirit of God in you. I see the wealth of the anointing and the cost of the anointing when I look at you. I look at many of you in here and I say, God, I want to be like that person. I want that anointing that they carry. I want the anointing that's on their life. I want that in my life. Yes, right. and I thank God for you. I thank God that you're still here and that you're still paving a way and you're still laying foundation and that you're still here and you're plowing and you're plowing and you're plowing. My wife and I, were, we lived in Virginia Beach for five years after we got married. That's where her family's from. We were helping her parents out. And then we felt literally about the same exact time. The Holy Ghost spoke to us and said, it's time to go back where I'm from, here over in Hamilton. And I, I came to her one day and I said, babe, I really feel that it's drawing close for us to move back to Hamilton. I feel that the, the Spirit of God is telling me that's, that it's time to go. And she looked at me and she shook her head and she said, yes. See, I feel the anointing up here. And I'm sensitive to the Spirit. That was before 
We felt this. See, I'm going to share a testimony here, not about me, but about just the goodness of God. This was before we heard that my father had been diagnosed with cancer. And he's not dead. He's right here. He's healed and whole, cancer-free. Amen? But we felt this, and it was not but just a month or two later. They called and they said, Dad's been diagnosed with cancer. He's going to have to have surgery. We don't know anything from there. Yada, yada, you know. And so even more, as we were praying, we knew. I was like, oh, yeah, we need to go help as much as we can. Let's just go help. Do whatever they need us to do. You can play. My wife plays the guitar, plays, uh, what name them off, guitar, electric, or acoustic. I just found out she can play the saxophone. <laughs> uh, she sings. She's a great singer. She can lead worship. I can play the drums. I can carry a tune in a bucket. I'm not one of those preachers. If they get up, you're like, do not do that. Okay? But I'm not a great singer, but I can sing with a team. We had a heart to lead young people. There was a need right in the spot that we came and filled for the young adults. We do everything to help as far as we can in the sound department and the media department. Our back building flooded. I'm just giving a little testimony here with sewage. We had a backup in our sewer system. And I was the first one to grab a shop vac. I'm not tooting my horn. But I looked around, and people were just looking at me. Like, what are you doing? And I'm like, this is a mess. Let's clean it up. Because there's so many people that are in my generation. They don't look at serving that way. You know, I used to go, and, and this is fine, because I'm just sharing my heart. I'm not up here boasting and bragging. I'm just... Not, not everybody in my generation is what everybody thinks about of my generation. I used to go, you can ask my father, on Saturday nights for the longest time, and I would straighten every chair in our sanctuary before Sunday service and put them back in line, and no one knew I ever did it. That's the kind of stuff it takes to be able to stand where I'm standing today. I don't think that you have to be drugged through the mud and you have to, you know, prove yourself, prove yourself. But you got to have a servant's heart. You got to have compassion for people. You got to have, number one, you need to have the anointing. <laughs> okay, I'm going to just say, number one, you need, you need to have the anointing. But you got to be able to serve. You got to be able to get down. And if a toilet's dirty, clean a toilet. If the chairs are messed up, straighten the chairs up. If the back building floods with sewage, get a shop vac. I ain't never smelled anything like that in my life. And I, I told, I'll tell you, brother, I work at a funeral home, and I hate, like I said, I have never smelled anything like what I smelled out of that back building. <laughs> but back to our text. <laughs> hey, or, uh, Mordecai told Esther he was telling them of the plot to kill them all off 
And he said, you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And I know that no matter how young or how old you are, you are in the kingdom for such a time as this. There's always something for you to do. I don't believe that preachers really ever retire. They may retire the, 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 the position of that and then just move over to something else, but you're probably never just fully going to just quit. There's always something for you to do. So she, she looks at Mordecai and she said, I, I, I can't do that. I, 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 I can't do this. And he looked at her and he said, but you are royalty. You can go boldly to the king. You are the bride of the king, Esther. And church, that's just a foreshadowing of the church. We can go boldly before the king. We are the bride of Christ. We do not have to live in worry or in, in being anxious. We can go straight to the throne. We don't have to worry about whether someone's going to be angry at us. God will never be angry with us if we come boldly but humbly to his throne. So she says, fast for me for three days. Let's fast. And I'll, I'll work up the courage to do this. So three days go by and she goes to the king. And the king says, yes, come in, Esther, what would you like? And she panics, and she can't say it, and she says, I want to have a banquet, let's have a party. And I want you to come, I want you to come to the banquet, king. And then, obviously, Haman is on her mind. And, he's, and she says, and, and Haman, bring Haman, bring him to the banquet, let's invite Haman. And the king said, okay, that sounds good, let's do that. So that night... In Esther chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, That night the king could not sleep, so one was commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. There's times that, I, that I've been woken up in the middle of the night, and I don't go get a history book and read a history book. I try to just hurry up and go back to sleep as fast as I can or get up, go get a drink of water, use the restroom, do whatever, and then go back to sleep. But the king said, bring me the record book. I can't sleep. And this is where God starts really moving in this story even though the name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. He is seen throughout the whole book. And I believe as that servant got the book and began to open it, there was already an invisible hand and finger on a certain page that helped that servant open the book. And when they open the book, the reader gets through, and I believe somewhere down in the bottom in a footnote section, it says, And Mordecai the Jew 
was standing at the palace gate that day and overheard the two temple guards plotting to assassinate the king. And so Mordecai goes directly to Esther, who goes to so-and-so, to so-and-so, who then told the king of the assassination plot. And when the king hears this, I could see him jump up and say, What? What? Read that again. Did I hear that correctly? And so they probably read it to him two or three times before he's able to really comprehend that Mordecai the Jew is the one who is responsible for foiling the assassination attempt on his life. And the king says, was this man rewarded? Did anybody do anything to this man to reward him for what he has done? They said, no, sir. Did he ask of anything to be done for him to relay this information information in exchange? No, sir. He just did it. You're telling me that this man, out of the goodness of his heart, stopped the plot to kill me? Yes, sir. That's what we're saying. I have to reward him. I have to do something. So the king is pacing all night long. He's pacing back and forth. He can't sleep. And the next day, Haman comes in, and he's walks in all proud, beating his chest. I'm here, king. I'm here. What, what, what do we need to do today? Who do we need to kill? And the king looks at him, and he says, Haman, let me ask you a question. Suppose there is a man in the land that I would like to honor and I would like to reward to show him how much that he means to me. And we all know in the scripture, Haman at that point, he thinks that the king is referring to him. And he's like, oh, well, (laughs) let me tell you, king. If you would ask me that, I would say that you, king, should take your robe off and put it on that person. And then, you, you, king, you should give them your best stallion that you ride. And you should let them ride on that stallion through the town with your robe on. And you should get a lesser person. And you should have the lesser person lead them by the bridle, walking through town and yelling, Hear ye, hear ye, this is the man who the king wishes to honor. So the king, I'm sure he stood there for a minute and he's like, Hmm, sounds good to me. Haman, I love it. What a wonderful idea. I love everything that you just said. Now you take everything that you just said, but do it to Mordecai the Jew. And we all know Haman, his, his jaw probably hit the ground. And he's thinking, you've, you, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. And so they're probably standing there, and I'm, I'm sure there's some awkward silence. Because even though Haman thinks he's high and mighty... He knows he cannot come against the king. So they're probably just standing there looking at each other, and the king's probably like grinning. 
And he said, Haman, you know what? I think you're important enough to lead the horse. So go do it. So he does it. And later that day, after a miserable day for Haman, they come to the final banquet. And the king looks at Esther at this banquet. And he says, now Esther, what do you really want? What, what is it that you need? What is it? And she looks and she says, king, there is a plot and a plan to kill off Mordecai, the Jew, and all of his seed. And she said, King, I don't know if you're aware, but I am also a Jew. So the king is enraged, and he stands up, and he says, Do you know who is the one behind this master plot? And she points, and she says, Haman. It's him. So the king, enraged, he gets up and he leaves and he goes off to his chambers. Because even though he was an unruly king, a mean one, ungodly, he didn't want to react until he would get a hold of himself. And so he storms off. And Esther leaves the table and she goes back to her room. And Haman's following after her. Oh God, what did you do? Oh my God, what did you do? He's going to kill me. Please don't do this. And he follows Esther back into her room and he falls on her bed crying and begging and pleading with her. Little did he know, and behind him walks the king and sees him laying on Esther's bed. Not only did he know that he had planned to kill Mordecai and his seed, now he's laying on his wife's bed. And he became more enraged. And, the, and, and followed the king was the guards. And he probably pretty much said, get your butt off of her bed right now. Get your tail up. And the rest of you. Yeah. And he said, Haman... Those gallows that you made for Mordecai and his seed? Yeah, you remember those that you kept me up the other night uh, banging hammers and nails and sawing and you were building them all night long? You remember those? Yeah, guards, get him and take him and hang him right now. Hang him right now on those gallows. That's what the Lord does for us that's what the Holy Ghost does for us when we're in a battle, when we're in a place of, of despair or we're, we're desperately seeking an answer or we're in an issue between uh, uh, there's, there's things going on in our churches and things just aren't right. The Holy Ghost is coming in and, and saying, Devil, I'm going to hang you on the very gallows that you have tried to hang my good people on. You won't have them. You can't kill them. 
you won't destroy them because I'll fool every plot that you have against them in their life. You will not succeed against my people. Though the weapon may be formed, Isaiah 54, it will not prosper. We sing that song. There's a song now. Though the weapon may be formed, it won't prosper. We sing that song and sometimes we fly by those lyrics and those words and we don't even really pay attention to what we're saying. Pastor Melissa, would you come play for me? Okay, thank you. You can play whatever you want. Just not, my God's not dead or something like that, you know. Okay. But there is always a plot and a scheme to take you out. But the Holy Ghost is in your back pocket at all times. And all you got to do is call on the Holy Ghost and He will foil the plan of Satan in your life. He will take that and hang Him on His own tactic and His own scheme. Amen? Even when you don't see it, even when we don't see it, God is always working. In the book of Esther, God never was mentioned. But even when they did not see God, He was always working throughout this whole story. I can't help but look back at my life in many instances that when I was in a place that God was always working even when I didn't see it happen right away. I can't help but think back to instances and times that the devil had an all-out attack on my life. And when I would call on the Holy Ghost, they would turn right around. That plot would be foiled. The devil would lose every time. 